1: Welcome to another episode of Naked Neuroscience, the podcast exploring the workings of the brain and the nervous system in our bodies and beyond. I'm Adam Murphy and I'm stepping in for Katie Haler. And this month...
2: Parkinson's patients and Alzheimer's patients have distinctive changes in their gut micropopulations. Are these changing prior to the onset of symptoms or are they occurring after and maybe an effect of the symptoms?
1: we're riffing around the concept of good feelings in a digestive sense, an emotional sense, and asking whether these concepts overlap at all. Music in the program is sponsored by Epidemic Sound, perfect music for audio and video productions. This month on Naked Neuroscience, we are going with our guts, literally and metaphorically. To kick off this topic, Katie asked her fellow naked scientists about their gut feelings. If I'm driving to work and I think there's going to be traffic in one direction, not traffic in another direction, I'll find that my gut feeling, it'll tell me to go exactly the opposite direction. And I'll go with that and it'll be correct and I think my gut is picking up on things subconsciously. Have you ever listened to your gut
3: to your detriment?
1: Yeah, I'm sure, especially as a teenager.
3: I love how you're not going to it. Enough said.
4: I think I mainly rely quite a lot on my gut feeling when it comes to determining whether a situation is safe as a woman. It happens with people. It feels a bit aggressive or just unpredictable then
3: I think that's when my gut says, oh, this might be dangerous, you don't know how this this will go, so i go away.
5: I associate gut feelings with anxiety because that's where I think, at least for me, anxiety manifests, butterflies in your stomach, contraction, tightening, feeling like a little nauseous.
1: So my biggest going with my gut moment was when I proposed. <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> so I had this big intricate proposal planned, and then that little voice in my gut went, You could just do it now, you know. You could just propose tonight. Just do it. And there was about 15 minutes of where my wife thought there was something desperately wrong with me because she could see this internal struggle playing out <laughs> on my face. <laughs> but eventually, the gut feeling one ran home, just grabbed the ring, and went, Do you want to get married?
3: I assume she said yes.
1: Yes, thankfully she did, in the longest three seconds of my entire life between asking and her saying yes. Well, as you can see, going with your gut has been pretty beneficial from where I'm standing. But thanks as well to Nadine, Amalia and Phil. But what exactly are the so-called gut feelings they were talking about? Katie called up neuroscientist Valerie Van Moolakom from Coventry University to find out. Valerie told Katie that as the brain makes sense of the world, actually a lot of processing happens out of our conscious awareness, and only a relatively small amount makes its way into our consciousness.
6: If something really important happens, but it doesn't reach our conscious awareness, this gives you a sort of emotional response or a feeling of salience, something that we have to pay attention to that is then translated as a sort of gut feeling in our conscious awareness. So it's almost as if some of this automatic subconscious processing that's happening just manages to catch your attention in your conscious awareness, if that makes sense.
3: There seems to be a bit of a spooky, mystical, uncanny element to gut feelings. Do we know much about
6: what these signals actually are? I think by the mystic aspect of intuition is that we don't know where it comes from and normally we feel like we're in control and when we suddenly are either reminded or we learn that sometimes uh, well actually lots of the processing of the brain happens not in a conscious awareness that is a bit of an eerie feeling it feels like we're not that much in control
3: how much do we know about the neuroscience of gut feelings has anyone stuck people in a brain scanner and encouraged them to have gut feelings to see what's actually happening
6: not that i'm aware of uh, because it's kind of hard to induce real strong gut feelings they just come to us when we don't expect them right but what they have done is skin conductance testing they put sensors on the palm of your hands and they test uh, how much you're sweating And they had this card game. So participants came into the lab. They had to turn over cards from one stack and they could switch between them. If you got a certain type of card, then you got a reward. And if you didn't get that card, you could get punished. And the idea was to get as much money as possible. And then they would get the money after the end of the experiment. It was rigged, obviously. So (laughs) there were stacks that progressively got worse and there were stacks that progressively got better. And before people were conscious of it, their hands would start sweating as they would reach for the bad stack. So basically, your brain already knew that this was a bad stack, but it hasn't quite reached your conscious awareness. So I think that might be the closest to what we've got so far, because it's really hard to measure intuition, considering that it isn't, you know, conscious awareness. People often say
3: you need to listen to your gut. What is your gut telling you if you're in a difficult sort of decision-making scenario? I find this really difficult to actually know what my quote-unquote gut is saying. Do you have any tips to help people actually hone in and listen?
6: Hmm. Maybe the simplest way is to not immediately dismiss it. There's been a study that I know of where they simply told people to keep a journal every time during the week where their intuition led to a good outcome. And just doing this exercise to help them tune in to their intuition. So just paying attention. But then I don't want to stress this too much because you can also have bad intuitions. I wouldn't encourage anyone to blindly follow their intuitions. Our brain is very biased. The brain has evolved to have lots of shortcuts, right? Um, we have biases like cognitive dissonance bias. So if we read something that we agree with, we're more likely to pick it up. And we tend to ignore things that we don't agree with. No, this is why it's important to not just rely on your feelings and intuitions, because it is an evolutionary older system and it is biased. This is why we need critical thinking as well and science.
3: Can you tell us a little bit about the comparison with analytical thinking?
6: It's not either or. So there's a lot of research in psychology where They try to say whether people are intuitive thinkers or analytical or rational thinkers. And I think that's just a little bit wrong because we definitely all use both, even if we don't know it. We need both, right? But I have a feeling that with these past, I don't know, century or so, maybe even since the Enlightenment, we're starting to think of emotions as these fallible things that we should do away with, as I myself used to think. And I think that is wrong, too. So if we could... Just see emotions for what they are, which is like useful ways of your body telling you to pay attention to something rather than thinking of physical things that should be ignored. Yes, pay attention to your gut feelings, but don't just jump into them without critical thinking.
1: Valerie van Mullekom there from Coventry University. So that's the intuition interpretation of gut feelings. What about a more literal approach? To find out what the gut can actually feel, Katie went to meet gut doctor Jeremy Woodward from Cambridge University Hospitals.
7: We talk about the gastrointestinal tract as being from the mouth to the anus. There's a lot of confusing terminology with this. People talk about the tummy when they mean the abdomen, short for stomach, and the stomach is a key part of the gastrointestinal tract. But when you follow it down from the mouth, you have a muscular tube, the gullet or esophagus, which then leads into the stomach. The stomach then leads into the small intestine, uh, and then into the colon, uh, and then out into the toilet.
3: I've heard that the gut actually has its own
7: brain. Well, it's not a brain like uh, our head brain, if you like. Um, We call it the gut brain because there are so many nerves present in the gut. About half a billion nerve cells, which is the same as you'd find in the spinal cord, but the other reason we, we talk about having a, a gut brain is actually the fact that it can function almost autonomously. We know that because if we transplant intestine, which we do here in this hospital, and they actually function perfectly well when we move the gut into another person.
3: Provocative question. What makes the gut so special that it deserves its own brain?
7: Well, one could turn that question around and say, why do we have a head brain, to be honest? The gut is the oldest organ in the body, and the nervous system evolved around the gut in order to provide ways of helping it work, but also helping to fill it, in other words, to to get food into it. So when you look through evolution, all of the things that are developed on the outside of animals uh, are really ways of actually getting food into the gut. And to a certain extent, uh, the head, where um, sensory organs are, uh, are concentrated, the head brain, if you like, uh, for uh, thinking and, uh, and planning, to a large extent, uh, when it comes down to the bottom line, it's about how we get food and how we fill the gut. In many ways, if you look at the evolutionary story, the gut brain came first and the head brain second <laughs> as, a, as a result of um, uh, uh, basically the, the evolution of nerves in the gut.
3: Not that you're biased or anything? Of course not. (laughs) Can you tell us a bit about how it's displayed in the gut?
7: Okay, so it doesn't look anything like a brain. What it is is just a network of uh, of nerve cells, long processes uh, spreading out from the nerve cell body, um, which are like the uh, electric wiring, if you like, um, that are able to transmit messages uh, from one point to another. And in the gut, they're thinly spread between the layers of the muscle and also under the surface lining of the gut, the mucosa.
3: Can you tell us a little bit about how food actually progresses down the gut?
7: The gut works by a process called peristalsis, and most people have heard of this. It's a very clever mechanism where food goes in one direction, usually. The gut senses a a lump, it relaxes below it and contracts above it, and that way we get a moving wave of contraction moving down the gut. It's extraordinary to watch. It's the the most beautiful thing. And there are even videos of people standing on their heads, and you can see the peristalsis moving against gravity.
3: I was going to actually ask you what would happen if I stood on my head and ate my breakfast. I imagine you would not be endorsing that, um, as someone who has to look after guts. But is this perhaps an example of what you were saying about the gut brain or enteric nervous system being able to work by itself?
7: So the gut actually is able to control its own movement entirely through the enteric nervous system. It's got this network of nerves. is responsible for contracting and relaxing below and moving this wave down the gut. And that's entirely independent of any nerves coming from outside and you wouldn't be aware of it. Interestingly, it is the esophagus, the gullet, where the brain has actually, in humans, taken over some of the control of of the muscle contraction. We don't see that in other animals. It seems to be specific to... uh, Uh, more recently evolved mammals. But further down, in the stomach and the intestine, this is all totally controlled within the nerves of the gut itself.
3: Can you tell me a bit about what the gut can feel, and by that I mean sense or or detect?
7: Well, you name it, effectively. Um, (laughs) There's uh, no end to what the gut can do. It's an extraordinary organ. I've already mentioned that uh, it can uh, sense the presence of a lump or a bolus of food, but the lining of the gut can actually even taste specific chemicals. So if there's a lot of fat in the meal, it will affect the way the gut works into more of a churning motion. Fat is also detected by cells that secrete hormones that make us release bile to help us to absorb it. And this is all regulated within the gut itself. But the gut can also sense noxious things, the feeling of nausea and sickness... When we've eaten something, we shouldn't. The yew tree berry, for instance, which looks very attractive, but is highly toxic. The gut will be able to sense that, and it will automatically make us vomit. The gut can recognize the difference between particles and fluid. That's part of the way that peristalsis works. It can sense the presence of bacteria, and even specific bacteria. It's capable of responding to stretch, and even probably to be able to tell part the consistencies of different foods going through it.
3: I'm glad I can respond to stretch because isn't that how I managed to eat my Christmas dinner or a couple of Christmas dinners, right?
7: Well, effectively, yes.
3: (laughs) (laughs) I'm curious, as a gut expert, what do you think, looking forward, are the more interesting questions to ask around how the gut is controlled or innovated?
7: For me, as as a clinician, understanding a lot more, about the afferent nerves, these sensory nerves from the gut that come back to the brain uh, and what fires them, how the gut is sensitive to things. I have to deal a lot with people who have a lot of sensations from the gut, pain and nausea. These sensations can be extremely unpleasant, and we as yet are very limited in our ability to understand the mechanisms for how they are occurring in these patients, but also how to make them better. Jeremy Woodward there from
1: Addenbrookes Hospital in Cambridge. And it's this communication between the gut and the brain that Jeremy just mentioned, which is what the next part of this episode is all about.
4: We think that a strong link between our gut and our brain evolved because ultimately a lot of information about our environment comes from our gut. So if we eat something dodgy or something, our brain really needs to um, know about it and needs to respond to keep us safe. Our gut can affect our brain, but also how we feel and our emotional state can in turn affect our gut.
1: That's Oxford University neuroscientist, Katarina Johnson.
4: And one of the ways that this happens is that there's a vagus nerve. So this is a major nerve that travels uh, between our gut and our brain. And interestingly, actually, 90% of nerve fibres in the vagus nerve communicate in the direction from our gut to our brain. And so this really suggests that our brain is actually more a receiver of information in terms of gut-brain communication.
1: One aspect of the gut not yet mentioned is the incredible abundance and diversity of microorganisms surviving and thriving down there in your intestines. They do vital jobs for us in exchange for taking up residence inside us, like helping to break down our food or produce vitamins for us. Katerina is interested in whether different types of gut microbes can tap into this gut-brain communication to affect our brain and maybe even our mood. So how exactly do these gut microbes hack the gut-brain hotline? Katie put this to Katarina. One of
4: the messages is via neurotransmitters travelling along the vagus nerve. Also, other messages as well. So for example, we think that our immune system plays an important role. So the types of bacteria living in our gut are very important for regulating our immune response and how we deal with infection. And it's good to have you know, an active immune response. But if we have an overactive immune response, this in turn has been linked to low mood and depression. So one of the interesting things at the moment we're looking into is that our gut bacteria can actually produce neurotransmitters. the a chemical uh, used to send uh, signals between nerves. And we typically think of neurotransmitters as being in our brain. But really, that's kind of a misnomer. Neurotransmitters are more just chemicals that help cells communicate with each other. So things like serotonin, dopamine, histamine, acetylcholine. And so one of the things we're interested in now is understanding whether these neurotransmitters produced in our gut can affect our brain. It may be that these neurotransmitters can trigger the vagus nerve and send signals to our brain that way. Or perhaps the neurotransmitters or their precursors
3: can travel through the blood and affect our brain it seems to be that there are multiple lines of communication there's this vagus nerve so electrical impulses being fired up from the gut to the brain but also there's the bloodstream right where perhaps particular metabolites are going up to the brain have i got that right
4: Yes, so for example, in terms of metabolites, we know our gut bacteria produce fatty acids when they break down our food, and in particular, short chain fatty acids, these can actually uh, travel through the blood and enter our brain directly. But bacteria produce such a wide range of chemicals that we're only really starting to understand. And a lot of these chemicals may be able to influence our immune system, you know, perhaps through our, our bloodstream, or like I said, the neurotransmitters they produce, they might just stay locally in the gut, but that doesn't mean that they can't affect the brain. Because they may well trigger uh, the vagus nerve. And in fact, there's some new research at the moment looking at whether electrical stimulation of the vagus nerve may help with things like um, depression. That does suggest that maybe how much our vagus nerve is stimulated and in what
3: way may affect how we feel and and our mood. It's so interesting you said that, because I actually quizzed the naked scientists about occasions where they may have been listening to their gut or gone with a gut feeling i mean it in an emotional or or psychological sense but actually one person said they really associate the phrase gut feelings with anxiety so how can this gut brain connection have any impact on our mood as you say what's going on A lot of the studies at the moment are in animals because it's
4: at early stages. But if you uh, use a a probiotic, so this is a type of live bacteria, in this case, lactobacillus, um, in animals it was actually found to reduce anxiety and the depressive-like behaviours that the animals showed. Um, But this was only the case when the vagus nerve wasn't damaged. We know that this probiotic actually seems to increase the firing rate of the vagus nerve. There's a big link between um, anxiety and stress and how we feel in our gut, most notably. For example, irritable bowel syndrome, where people often suffer from gut conditions um, and kind of uh, psychological symptoms at the same time. The study found that in two thirds of cases, people suffered from kind of gut conditions before the onset of things like stress and anxiety. And in the other one third of cases, they suffered from uh, stress and anxiety prior to the onset of gut conditions. So this really underpins the fact that this is a two way communication
3: between our gut and our brain. Does that hint in any way as to the cause of someone's anxiety are we saying that what's going on in your gut may cause you to feel anxious in your brain or, or or is that a bit of an oversimplification
4: it's a bit tricky really because you know there's so many factors that might affect how we feel and our mood and our anxiety and and research in this whole field of the microbiome at the moment is starting to suggest that the types of bacteria in our gut may influence how we feel but we don't know at the moment how strong this is so so do they have a, a really big impact on you know on our brain or, or is it really just like one tiny piece of the puzzle if you're stressed or you're worried about something you know you often feel it in your gut you know and if we're stressed particularly over long periods of time um there's some studies that actually suggest that stress can uh, deplete the abundance of beneficial um, gut bacteria and actually it can affect our whole kind of gut environment and how our gut works in terms of things also like mucus secretion and our the motility of our gut so yeah it's an interesting question trying to understand how much our gut affects our brain. And there was one interesting study that found that people with a lower abundance of a certain type of bacteria that we know is a prolific producer of the neurotransmitter GABA actually also tended to show stronger Kind of brain signatures of depression when their brains were scanned. and so um, this is just kind of one study that we need to look more into, but it does suggest that maybe the types of chemicals and neurotransmitters produced by bacteria in our gut might be one factor influencing
3: you know how we feel. One of the functions that the gut has is to digest our food. So how does what we eat? relate to this connection between the gut and the microbes and the brain?
4: Yeah, so there's a lot of interest at the moment trying to understand whether what we eat has a big effect on the types of bacteria that live in our gut. So we know that, for example, people that eat more fruit and vegetables, they have a high abundance of gut bacteria that like to digest fibre. There have been some initial studies. For example, there was one looking at a particular type of fibre known as prebiotic fibre. And this is actually uh, known to promote the growth of bacteria we tend to associate with good health, so bifidobacterium and lactobacillus that also have anti-inflammatory properties. And they actually found that after a few weeks, people that had been consuming this prebiotic fibre tended to have lower levels of cortisol, so their body stress response had, had reduced. So it does suggest suggests that maybe you know changing the types of bacteria in our gut you know may influence our physiology and how we feel. And this prebiotic fiber is is found in foods like um, banana, chicory, onion, garlic, pulses, and grains. But really, in terms of understanding how specific elements of our diet affect our gut, it's still in its infancy.
3: If there are bacteria that thrive on food that we may consider to be more healthy, like high in fibre, for instance. I imagine there are gut bacteria that thrive on things we may consider to be less healthy. Does this have any relation to our, well, I know, my desire to consume foods which are high in fat and sugar?
4: Yes, so uh, when uh, gut bacteria break down particular types of food, they can release metabolites that then potentially can travel to the brain and and affect our feelings of, of appetite but we're not sure at the moment we can't say that like kind of our gut bacteria you know make us crave a certain type of food because they want it that's probably unlikely because it's very costly for bacteria to produce a signaling chemical and it would probably be outcompeted because our gut microbiomes are so diverse but you know, I've got it. are really important for affecting things like how hungry or full we feel. But yeah, it's still kind of in its infancy at the moment.
1: Katerina Johnson there from Oxford University. Now here in East Anglia, scientist Simon Carding is delving deep into the gut microbe brain connection, hoping to find out if age associated changes to the microbes within our gut could be playing a role in dementia. The complex microbial makeup of the gut is important for health and, according to Simon, drastic changes in the balance of microbial populations, for instance due to changes in diet or medicines, could be having negative impacts upon our health, including neurological health. Phil Sansom found out more.
2: It's quite clear from studies looking at dementia patients, in particular Parkinson's disease, that GI symptoms, that's gut disorders, seem to precede the onset of the classical Parkinson's symptoms. Several research groups have shown using animal models of Parkinson's disease that microbes might be playing a causative role in Parkinson's disease. And again, it's through the production of things that interfere with the communication, or they actually make the misfolded proteins that cause some of the defects in the brains of dementia patients, they can actually make them themselves to exacerbate the disease process.
5: Now, this system, this gut microbe to brain access, how do you actually investigate and do science on it?
2: There are two principal ways. One is um, in laboratories, in culture dishes, where we can isolate cells of particular interest. So, for example, cells that make up the blood brain barrier or cells that line the gut. Using these culture based systems, we can look at what impact particular gut microbes or their products have on these cells. Does it change their pattern of behavior? Does it change the factors they produce, the hormones or the neurotransmitters? And then, for more sort of, I guess, more directly relevant studies, we'd move into animal models. So the mouse is used as classical model for this. But what we really need is more human-based studies to look at, particularly the role that gut microbes might play in cognitive failure and dementia development.
5: What are your mean question or questions specifically?
2: Well, we'd really like to know, are the changes in gut micropopulation seen in dementia patients a cause of the disease process, or are they a consequence or an effect of the disease? So to do this, we have to do longitudinal studies. That's looking at people over a significant period of time, trying to identify what occurs first and what sequence of events occurs in these patients that ultimately leads to declining cognitive function and dementia so we have one such study underway at the moment it's called the motion study in which we're looking at individuals 60 years of age and older we assess their cognitive function and according to the performance of those tests we categorize individuals low medium or high risk for developing dementia and we'll follow those over a period initially for four years but hopefully longer where we'll perform tests on looking at their gut micropopulations that were present in the stool samples, looking for changes in there. Do they occur prior to significant change in their cognitive function? But we're also looking at the structure of the brain, so we do MRI scans. And interestingly, we're also looking at the eye, because the eye is not only the window to the brain, but it's one of the fastest ageing organs in the body. So again, we're looking for what what are the first indicative changes in the eye, the brain, the gut, That give a signature for this patient is starting to develop dementia. And of course, if we can identify these key tipping points, if you like, then we can identify means with which we can hopefully intervene.
5: And when you're looking at the microbiome of these people, do people developing or, or who have Parkinson's have noticeably different microbiomes or does everyone just have a very different pattern?
2: everybody's microbiome is unique it's like your microbial um, fingerprint if you like but everybody has a core population of microbes which are important particularly for food digestion but what's been shown in parkinson's patients and alzheimer's patients as well is they have distinctive changes in their gut micro populations
5: so when you replicate those in your petri dishes and in your mice what changes do you notice
2: course, it's very difficult to recapitulate in a petri dish or a tissue culture plate the complexity of the gut and the complexity of the microbial constituents. We're looking at a only a representation of what's present. But some of the changes we're seeing are these changes in the in gut micropopulations. That is associated with an increased leakiness of the gut. It's called a leaky gut syndrome. And a leaky gut would allow microbes and their products more easily or more readily accessible to the bloodstream. And again, this could exacerbate certain diseases. And the classical example of this is inflammatory bowel disease. So there may be a common link, if you like, to some other quite serious diseases. But in this case, it would have an impact on the brain for dementia patients. Does it cause dementia? Well, certainly the animal studies... are pointing a strong finger at suspicion at gut microbes being part of the cause of uh, dementia. So these transplant studies that have been done in mice quite have quite striking effects and make the disease clearly much worse than if normal microbes from a healthy individual are transferred into these mice. So there is, if you like, a smoking gun for gut microbes right now, and, you know, the evidence is, is, is quite compelling, but we really need to substantiate that and sort of validate the studies, if you like, by looking more closely in, human, in humans, particularly individuals prior to the onset of clinical symptoms. If they are really a major cause of disease, then there's there means by which we can manipulate gut microbes to alleviate or maybe even stop the symptoms developing. I mean, the classic one would be probiotics, for example, or prebiotics, or even fecal microbiota transplantation, the wholesale replacement of somebody's gut micropopulation with one that's a more healthy one, for example. So there are quite a few interesting possible interventions if we do, in fact, find gut microbes are a cause of this disease.
5: And lastly, in this show, we are talking about, quote-unquote, gut feelings. Yes,
2: yes, (laughs) yes.
5: What do you think about how gut microbes can change the way that you feel?
2: So, yes, is very interesting. So, I mean, emotions play a critical role in the ability to make fast and rational decisions. These emotions are generated from physiological changes uh, to stimuli. And this could be manifested as muscle tone, heart rate, hormone activity. And the brain transforms these emotions in an individual. So it can recall if that stimulus comes again a very rapid response which would be the emotional response. Some of these emotions could well originate from the gut and a physician called Emmerin Mayer proposed in around 2016 I believe that from birth gut microbe activity in response to certain stimuli produces physiological changes that are relayed to the brain. So this stimuli could be food or drugs And this could result in changes that relate to pleasure and consumption or pain and avoidance. So in that context, you can imagine that in response to certain stresses, the gut instincts, that gut feeling takes over as an immediate, fast response without the brain really getting too involved in it. And that's because it's learned from previous experience.
1: Simon Carding from the University of East Anglia and the Quadrum Institute. We've just dipped our proverbial toes into the ocean of microbiome research going on at the moment. And though it's early days, I'm excited to find out how the field progresses. So from intuition to intestines, I hope you've enjoyed this roam around good feelings this month. Thanks to all our guests, Simon Carding, Valerie Van Mulikom, Jeremy Woodward and Katerina Johnson. And thanks to all of you as well for listening. We'll be back next time with more Naked Neuroscience where we're getting ready, set, Go, in the world of gaming and gaming disorder. And if you've missed our usual Naked Neuroscience news sections, don't worry. Duncan and Helen will be bringing their chosen papers to you on this feed later in the month. Meanwhile, you can get in touch via neuroscience at scientists.com or drop us a message on Facebook or Twitter where we're at Naked Scientists. I've been Adam Murphy from the Naked Scientists team, and until next time, goodbye.